0: You're listening to the Philly Young Adults Podcast, Mark Chapter One. I'm going to read the first thirteen verses. We're going to take a look at them tonight and uh, see what happens. So the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness And proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. And with you I am well pleased. And the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals. And the angels were ministering to him. So real quickly. Just a brief little thing about who is Mark, the writer of the gospel. Uh, In the early 2nd century, a bishop of Hierapolis named Papias quotes the Elder John, which is believed to be the Apostle John, who wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the Book of Revelation. So Papias quotes him uh, saying that um, Mark, who became Peter's interpreter, The Apostle Peter, so Mark was Peter's interpreter, wrote accurately, though not in order, all that he remembered of the things said and done by the Lord. So Mark, according to the Apostle uh, John, was Peter's disciple and interpreter in Rome, and he recorded all of the things that Peter had preached while he was in Rome. Okay, Um, And then writer after writer through the early church echoed this exact same statement. So, Mark is also found in Acts chapter 12, 13, 15, Colossians 4, Philemon verse 24, 2 Timothy 4 verse 11, and then 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 13. His mother's house was a meeting place for the believers, which is the house that Peter went to when the angel had rescued him from prison. You remember when Peter gets woken up in jail and he goes and he's knocking on the door and the lady at the door is like not opening for him, right? That was Mary's house, who was the mother of John Mark, the writer of this gospel. He went on the first missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas, you remember? And then he turned back and Paul was all upset about it. Then he went on the second missionary journey with Barnabas all right, and fulfilled. We see years later him named as a fellow worker of Paul in both Colossians and Philemon. So apparently that uh, relationship and trust was restored over some time between Mark and Paul. And then he's uh, Paul ends up requesting Timoth, uh, uh, Mark's aid in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. And then lastly, Peter attests in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, that Mark is his son in the faith, writing from Rome. So no doubt this man, Mark, this writer, who's sharing this gospel with us, who records it for our sake, is very well acquainted with the life of Christ had second-hand knowledge uh, from Peter himself who walked the entire earthly ministry with Jesus. So Mark puts down on paper for us that which Peter had preached. And it says, the writer there says, That he didn't do it in order, but he uh, recorded accurately everything that was preached. By the way, that was the apostle John who said that, who read this gospel after it was written. John was the last of the apostles to die. So he reads the gospel. It was probably written around 64, 65 AD, which is about 30 years after Christ was resurrected. Mark wants to put this to the paper, to preserve the life and the sayings of Christ. He was probably the first gospel to be written of the four, And John, the apostle, reads it and says, he recorded accurately everything that was said and done. And John was with Christ, right, for them whole times. Y'all know he was one of the three. So what we have here recorded is a true record and you know skeptics and critics will say you know what we have that was canonized was only because the church fathers that were in place at that time it suited their needs and this and that and it's like no the reality is the reason these things were canonized and preserved in the scriptures is because they were always accepted as scripture from the very early beginnings of the christian church all of the believers read these things heard them and was like yeah that's true that's what happened that's why they were canonized So don't get thrown off when people are like, oh, there were so many more gospels, the ones recorded this and that. It's like, no. The reason they're preserved is because they were always accepted as true from the very beginning, from the apostles and the earliest Christians uh, from that point forward. So just by way of introduction, that's who Mark is. Verse 1 then says, this man, Mark, writing for us, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is like his title for the whole thing that he's going to write moving forward. Now, gospel means, which most of you probably well know, <clears throat> good news. And in our sense, it is the entirety of Jesus's life. The gospel is Jesus. His birth His sinless life, his death on the cross, which, by the way, was his payment for our sin, his resurrection from the grave, and his ascension back to the right hand of God. That is the gospel. It's a message of hope, of joy, of comfort, and of deliverance. All of those are super important to know. It is the single most important story in all of history. There is no other story, no other fact, no other anything that is more important in human history than this story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is God's way of salvation. This good news is God's way of salvation. And Mark introduces this to be specifically the good news of Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. Jesus being his birth name brings us to his humanity. Hopefully you guys know this. And if you don't, here's a little bit of knowledge. Christ is not his last name. And I do say that because some people just don't, you know, like they said earlier, some people just don't know. Christ is not his last name. We don't actually know his last name. He was Jesus of Nazareth. Christ is the Greek translation for the Hebrew word Messiah. For the Greek-speaking Jews during this time the title of Christ was attributed to one who was anointed by God to carry out specific tasks related to the liberation of Israel. And how exactly this one one would be recognized and the exact tasks that he would carry out varied among different sects of these Jews. However, it was basically unanimous that he would deliver the nation from the nation of Israel from under the hand of whoever it was that ruled over them at that time he would establish his throne in Jerusalem he would smash those who made the people suffer and rule with justice while restoring the lost fortunes of the nation so that was the was the expectancy of the Jews in this day of what their messiah would be and what he would accomplish now, at the time that Mark had wrote these things, remember it was probably around 65 five a d Jesus had already been crucified. He had not delivered the nation the way that the people had expected. Rome was still ruling with an iron fist. Jesus was not sitting on a throne in Jerusalem, dictating the moves of the nations and bringing justice for the oppressed, not to mention the theological hindrance of Jesus himself being crucified. Deuteronomy 23 verse 13, you may know, states that a man who is hanged on a tree is in fact cursed by God. So to anyone who was awaiting this promised Messiah, the deliverer of Israel, this idea that Jesus was in fact him was an absurdity. And yet, every one of the writers in the New Testament, including Mark, fully understood this and still boldly put his story to the page anyway. They were Jews. They fully understood the expected Messiah to be doing all of these things. And yet they still put to the page the things that seemed to be an absurdity to so many others. It was absolutely no hindrance to them whatsoever. He did not shy, Mark did not shy away from any of these details think about it. If they were ashamed of the message of the cross and didn't think he was the Messiah, they would have tweaked their message, right? But they didn't. They put it all out there in full detail. To these followers of Jesus, it was no scandal at all. To them, it was the evidence of a misunderstanding of the role of this Messiah and the scope of his deliverance. For he will fulfill all of what they were expecting. All of those things. Smashing those who oppress the poor. Sitting on a throne in Jerusalem. Deliverance for the nation of Israel. He's going to fulfill all those things. They're recorded in scriptures. That's why those people were expecting it. But there was something else that had to be dealt with. To these writers, to Mark specifically, it was a misunderstanding of the role of this Messiah and the scope of his deliverance. Um, there was something else that needed to be dealt with first. And that is the eternal issue of sin. So in order to understand the gospel message and properly bring it to the context of our day, and the reason I take time to kind of spell those things out is because we always want to bridge that context, right? We want to bring it into modern day. We want to bring it into 2023. In order to bridge that context and bring this message properly into our day, we need to realize how it exposes our false hopes and selfish expectations the same way it did in the first century. We have these hopes. We have these expectations. We have all of these things. I mean, think about it. All the different perceptions that our world has about Jesus. I mean, and there's tons of them. Some mock the message altogether, as they did in that day. Some lose hope because they had the wrong idea of what putting trust in him would bring to their lives. Some cannot believe in a God who allowed himself to be killed. To them, it's a shameful message. Yet for others whose hearts have been made ready, soil prepared to receive the seed, there's nothing shameful about it. For us... It is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who would believe. And that's the message of the gospel. For us, it is the power of God unto salvation to anyone who would believe. The advent of Christ was to deliver anyone who would put their trust in him from the dominion of sin and death and to give us eternal life. And that, my friends, is good news. I know my own heart, I know my own life, and I hope you can look at yours and say, I'm a wretched man, and I need a savior. And sin is the main issue, and that was what the first advent was all about. God cannot and will not be confined to our expectations, and he wasn't in that day either. His name, Jesus, identifies him with mankind, And his name, his title, the Christ, identifies him with his heavenly role. And therefore, he rightfully is declared to be the Son of God. And that is why Mark opens up his book, and it's really the title of his entire gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written, verse moving forward in verse 2 through 3, it says, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet... Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. So in quoting two, in quoting these two prophetic passages of scripture, because he says they're from Isaiah, they're actually from Malachi and Isaiah. He probably chose Isaiah because it was the more well-known, and sometimes Isaiah would just be referenced to kind of sum up all of the prophetic writings. Mark takes his reader back centuries earlier to illustrate that the beginning of the gospel was long before the moment that Jesus stepped on the scene, physically speaking. The first is taken from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. So let's read in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. But let's read a few surrounding passages as well. Not many, but to set the context there. So I'm going to start in 2.17 and read down to 3.1. I'll give you a second. It's the very last book in the Old Testament, by the way. So when you hit that blank page before Matthew, just flip one more. You'll probably be there. Chapter 2, verse 17 says, You have wearied the Lord with your words. This is the prophet speaking. But you say, How have we wearied him? By saying, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he delights in them. Or by asking, Where is the God of of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. That's the Lord speaking. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. This is clearly a passage stating that a messenger will be sent by the Lord himself, and then suddenly the Lord himself will show up. And he's going to show up at a time when you're saying good is evil, and and mocking God in in a sense like, where is this God of justice? And he says, I'm going to send my messenger, and suddenly the Lord is going to appear. The second one is taken from Isaiah chapter 40. and I'm going to read down a few because it's really only one verse that he quotes, but I'm going to, again, read a few around it. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1 through 5. It says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. So it's a message of comfort to the people of God. The warfare is ended. Iniquity has been dealt with. That's sin. And she's received from the Lord's hand double for her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make straight in the desert, a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain hill will be made low. The uneven ground will become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So that's the message that the prophet Isaiah writes. And here we see God's promise to comfort his people by pardoning their sin. But a messenger will come before this mission succeeds that. And that messenger will make ready the people for the coming of the Lord. And in that day, if any prominent king or anyone was coming to town, they'd clear the roadways, they'd, you know, patch up any holes in the streets, they'd remove any stumbling stones, all that. Sort of like today when the president or the Pope comes to town, you know what I mean? Like they make it ready. And that's the idea. This messenger will come before the anointed one does. So, (coughs) verses 4 through 8 then talk of you know illustrate who this messenger was John appeared verse 4 baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins and all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan confessing their sins now John was clothed with camel's hair and he wore a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey And he preached saying, after me comes he who's mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So here we get introduced to John the baptizer. And Mark wastes no time and moves directly into the ministry of this man. By the way, throughout this entire gospel, Mark just paints these pictures. Boom, boom. And he just like keeps it moving. Like he doesn't waste time. He's the one who illustrates the servant of God. He focuses more on the doings of Christ as opposed to the words of Christ. Not, not that he doesn't record any of them. But Matthew and Luke record, and, and John record way more of the teachings of Jesus than Mark. Mark's speaking to Romans who are about service and getting things done. And Mark's in Rome, writing to Romans, illustrating for them this Messiah, this one, he got the thing done that he needed to get done. And that would speak to the hearts of those Romans. So he just moving like right along. He doesn't waste any time. Luke tells us of his heritage his birth, and that from his youth until the moment that we have recorded in Mark, he lived in the wilderness. Speaking of John the Baptizer, Luke gives way more detail about John and his upbringing, his mother and father, that he was a Levite and all that kind of stuff. Luke gives way more detail. Um, Matthew will detail more of the message that he actually spoke and his interactions with the religious leaders. So if you want to check those things out, you can go to Luke and find it. You can go to Matthew and find it. Mark doesn't even deal with it but mark points Mark's point is less about John and more so about his role as it pertains to the Son of God. Mark's really just touching on on John to say, "Look, he fulfilled the prophets, He was the messenger. the Lord has come. John cared for nothing. John this baptizer, when you read these things, right he's in the wilderness, he's proclaiming this radical message, like you know you can kind of picture him out there like just just wild, right. John cares nothing except for his heavenly call to proclaim the message of God's kingdom. He preached specifically of the offenses against God and the need to repent in order to receive the comfort and the pardon that Isaiah had spoken of. Repentance is absolutely crucial in his message. He cared nothing about what the people might think of him, his message was not at all a tender message that sought to win the people over to his personality before telling him the truth. He, didn't, he was not concerned with those things. He cared nothing about the material things of this world. He literally lived among the elements of the wilderness, was clothed with animal skins, and ate bugs with honey. That's what it was. That was his life. In fact, I believe it's Luke who details it more clearly that from his youth on up, that's what he did. It wasn't like at some point when he was like 30, he went out there. From his youth on up, that was his life. He cared nothing about notoriety, position, or popularity, for he was continually looking forward to the one who would surpass him. And when that one would come, he would gladly fade off the scene. All of this and multitudes upon multitudes were coming to him to be baptized. Multitudes. In fact, I believe it's Josephus, the early historian, says that more thousands a day were getting baptized by John. Like this message was ringing true in their hearts. That's the idea. There was like a huge revival of sorts because of it. They heeded his message because everything about him Testified to his conviction that it was true. There was no arrogance about him. He was clothed in humility. Now, I will put a little caveat in there. Some people take this idea and this, you know, illustration of John and run to extremes that are not warranted in scripture. Like standing on campuses with these offensive signs, screaming at people that they're going to hell. That was not what John was. And that's not what it's inviting us to do. Okay? Okay. But there are plenty of practical applications that can be drawn out from John the Baptist. And I'm not suggesting you follow his lead in going off the grid and wearing animals as your clothing in order to fill God's purposes in your life. That's not what I'm saying. Although if he's calling you to it, go for it. I won't be the Holy Spirit in your life. But we are called to be ambassadors for Christ and to make ready the way to those around us by sharing the message of God's forgiveness for our sin by repentance and faith in the risen Christ. That is for sure. And that is true. And we are not to be arrogant with that message. We are not to be arrogant with that message. But to live it out in humility. And people realize genuine. So if I'm proclaiming a message that I myself do not live up to, there's an issue. We are to proclaim that message while living it out in humility. And hindrances to us sharing this good news typically are exactly what John cared nothing about. Success in this world over the heavenly purpose and calling. Opinions of other people. Material comforts and pride all of which, and there are many more, but John definitely illustrates these points, all of these things will totally hinder the effectiveness of us sharing the gospel in this world. Success in this world over our heavenly purpose. Opinions of other people. John cared nothing what people thought about him. And that's the point that he illustrates. Not that you have to wear camel clothes and eat locusts, but he, he didn't care. He knew what God called him to and he was living that out regardless of what anyone said. Material comforts were of no use to him. And I get it. God blesses and God bless that. He can do that and still use you. I'm not speaking against those things. My point is, if that trumps God's purpose in your life, you're going to have some conflict with the Lord. And pride. Pride will bring you down. Period. Period. John recognized his position as simply a messenger and pointed to the one who was to come, whom John was not even worthy to untie his shoes, he says. John introduced people to the message of the kingdom that repentance toward God would lead to forgiveness of sin. But he said that one is going to come who will actualize this message. He was just preaching the message, but he's like one is coming who will make it real. He will baptize with the Holy Spirit, and in that baptism, that baptism of Christ, forgiveness of sin and regeneration will take place. And John knew it prophetically. So verses 9 through 11, again, Mark, just boom, right along. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water... Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. During all of that, was happening with john the baptist multitudes upon multitudes coming to him being baptized repenting of their sin the pharisees and the sadducees and the scribes and all of them are coming out like to see what's going on and he's like you brood of vipers repent like he didn't care in the middle of all of that jesus comes forth or as the prophets declare the chosen servant the glory of the lord appears suddenly Christ steps on the scene. Mark doesn't give us anything of his upbringing. He doesn't give us anything about him being in the temple when he was 12 like the other writers do. He's just like, here's the beginning of the gospel. This is what I want to get to right here. Jesus identifies with us in our human frailty and in our temptations and in our death. Likewise, here he identifies himself with us in our sin by being baptized in a baptism that is specifically related to sin. People get all tripped up with this whole deal, like Jesus being baptized. It's a baptism of repentance. How could Jesus, being sinless, be baptized in this whole thing? No, 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 no. Jesus identifies with us, humankind, in everything. If he couldn't identify with man he couldn't deliver man. The whole purpose of him coming was for our deliverance from sin and death. Therefore, he had to be identified with us in its entirety. So he identifies in our human frailty by taking on flesh. In our temptations, which we'll see, he goes and he's tempted by Satan. He identifies with us in our death and he triumphed over all of it. And likewise, in that process, he identifies with us in this baptism of repentance. I believe he's probably confessing sin, not his own sin, but the sin of mankind, the sin that breaks the father's heart, the sin that separates us from him for all of eternity. For the scriptures clearly declare that he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of of God he identifies with our sin he took it upon himself Isaiah 53 is clear as day about that and we took communion I think last week went through that whole thing Mark has no problem writing this out through holy love the righteousness of God can be attributed to sinners like us for he saves to the uttermost and nothing is overlooked surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand, as it says in Isaiah 53. Mark is not at all concerned with our theological hangups of what this might mean. He plainly states that Jesus was baptized, and he moves right along. It's beautiful. So I only say that for those who kind of wrestle through these theological things. Mark had no issues. Paul. Paul. He had no issues with these things. Peter had no issues. John, the apostle, had no issues with these things. It wasn't until centuries later when people got really smart that they started kind of dividing all this out and parsing it out. uh, How do we make this work? Mark just writes it and keeps it moving. He identified us, with us, in every aspect of humanity. He bore our grief and our sorrow. And as Jesus comes up out of the water, the Father and the Holy Spirit testify their approval of this work. For immediately it says that the heavens are ripped open, and the Spirit descends, and the Father speaks, You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Here we have the Trinity subtly mentioned Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all testifying in one that this is the work of God. Verses 12 through 13 then say, the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Excuse me. Interestingly, Mark tells us that as soon as Jesus is consecrated for his public ministry, the spirit drives him out into the wilderness to be tempted. Drove him out is actually a very forceful phrase. Uh, It's like how Jesus later would force the money changers out of the temple. You guys remember the scene, right? Like that was very forceful. It's the same idea. It's the same kind of word. He was driven forcefully into the wilderness Here is sinlessness, holiness, and perfect love clothed in human flesh, face to face with pure evil for 40 days, and Satan is overcome. You know, the other gospels only tell us about the three temptations that came, right? And how Jesus combated it with the word of God. Mark here states, testified by Peter and approved by the apostle John, that for 40 days he was tempted And we know that he was fasting throughout that time. So I don't even think we can really totally like imagine maybe what was going on because we're so sinful that like temptation and all is like, you know, we actually don't get that offended by it. I mean, maybe we do when we're like, like on a spiritual high or we recognize kind of what's going on. But here is perfect holiness, perfect love, every, all of it, like God in flesh and Satan steps right to him and tempts him for 40 days straight. Think about how bold and defiant Satan is to step to the Holy One like that, the Son of God, to tempt him. Saints, do not be surprised by the temptations that come your way. If Jesus himself was tempted, you can can assure yourselves that you will also be tempted. He's not scared, and he is playing for keeps. And it's a for real battle. Anyone who just came back from the weekend in the Word understands this a little bit better now than we did maybe a week ago. The spiritual warfare around your life. And I'll also say for some of you that when you're tempted and you know you're struggling with that, like don't think that it's because you got like lesser faith or you're like weaker in the faith. Christ Himself was tempted for forty days. It has nothing to do with, with your faith in Christ. Satan wants to kill and destroy, period. And he, he's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Whether you've been walking with the Lord for 15 plus years or you just got saved, he's going to tempt you and he wants to draw you out. He, stu- he, he stepped to the Messiah himself to tempt him. So don't be surprised when it comes your way. But this message of repentance and forgiveness is one part of the gospel message that has been introduced, right? What John was putting forth, this message of one coming after him, and in order to make yourselves ready for that Messiah, we're to repent of our sins and put our faith in him, right? Like that's one aspect of this gospel message. The message of Jesus ultimately triumph. The message of Jesus is that he ultimately triumphs in crushing Satan is the second part of that message. So he'll be tempted for 40 days by by Satan himself. And we have the record in Matthew and in Luke about how he combats that with the word of God. But there's good news in this, that it's not just that he overcomes sin and death, but also that he overcomes Satan himself. We read in Revelation this week and how he's cast out. Romans sixteen twenty says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Here we have the beginning of the defeat of that wicked one, that old serpent, the devil. Beginning, right? Mark says the beginning of the gospel. The beginning of the gospel is that message of repentance from sin. And the beginning of the gospel right here is recorded that Jesus will triumph over this wicked one, and he surely will. So stand firm in the resources that God gives, which we just spent this last weekend discussing, and you will have victory over the temptations that come your way. So in closing, the reality is that this message is just as relevant today as it was some 1,900 years ago. It's just as relative. And the reality is that we are simply messengers who carry this forth to the world around us. This Messiah, this Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, he still delivers from sin and death and gives eternal life. And we are to live that out in humility, not in arrogance, and to share that love with the world around us. And we just got to share the message. The Messiah himself will do the work. He overcame Satan. He overcame the grave. He destroys sin and death. So my encouragement to you, as we continue, we're going we're to follow this thing all the way out, and Mark's going to spell out this life, this death, this burial, this resurrection and ascension. He's going to do that whole thing. So I encourage you to track with us as we do on Monday nights. Read ahead. I encourage you, if not tonight, maybe tomorrow, read this whole gospel in its entirety. This wouldn't have been read when when Mark delivered it to the saints. It wouldn't have been like, guys, we're going to read the first 13 verses tonight. They didn't even have verses. They would have read the whole thing. And this whole message was the encouragement that they needed. Like, yes, our Messiah overcame. Remember, the saints were dying off. Those who were eyewitnesses were dying off. There were only a few left. Mark put it to the page to preserve it so that we could carry this message forth. And we have it in our hands today and we too can carry it forth into this world around us. So don't be ashamed of it. It's the power of God and the salvation. Walk it out in humility and in love, but walk it out. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word unto us. We thank you for your goodness, Lord. We thank you for your salvation. We thank you for deliverance from sin and death that you overcame the grave and Satan himself. Lord, have your way in us, your people, your sons and daughters. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here tonight that does not know you in truth, that you'd be stirring in their hearts, Lord, that this message would break through and you'd speak and you'd bring them unto saving truth. Father, we commit the rest of this night to you. We want to worship. We adore you, Lord. We love you. Have your way in us and through us, Lord. We give the rest of this evening to you.